This is call and response week, and I'm expecting a response. So here's the deal. When I say, God calling, your response is with as much vim, vigor, and vitality as you can muster, here I am. Okay, so let's try this. God calling. All righty then. Whenever you hear that, that's your cue. I apologize for the quality of the video. Aaron was using a very primitive iPhone, so it was a little grainy, but at least we have the footage. It's good. In exactly one month from now, there will be a movie in the theater, Exodus, Gods and Kings, starring a Christian. Well, at least Christian Bale. And in order to get ready for that, we need to bone up on our Moses story. So our text for today is what you've seen. It's Exodus 3 up through 4:17. There are a remarkable number of call narratives in the Bible. And by no means are they all of one sort. Very few of these narratives actually involve both a call and a conversion though the story of Saul on Damascus Road is the exception to the rule. What almost all of these call narratives in the Bible share in common is that they are calls to some kind of ministry, some kind of divine service, and very often they are recall narratives, the calling of an already called person to do something new or something better, for instance, the recalling of Isaiah in Isaiah 6 to say some uncomfortable things to God's people, or the repurposing of someone like the Ezekiel of priestly descent to be a visionary prophet. And as I've already indicated, there is a stereotypical response in these narratives. When God calls and says, God calling, the response is... All righty, whether it's Moses or Isaiah or Samuel or someone else. Interestingly, it is Paul who breaks the pattern by instead responding to the heavenly vision, not here I am, but who the heck are you? <laughs> Leave it to Paul to not follow the well-worn beaten track of how to respond to God. Today we will consider one of the oldest of these call narratives involving someone who may have been named after a pharaoh, Tutmosis, namely our own Moses. As I like to say, a text without a context is just a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. And when you're dealing with as seminal and crucial a text as Exodus 3, 4, the calling of Moses, being commissioned at the burning bush, you need to know the context as clearly as possible. Now, as it happens, we have some clear guidance on this from the New Testament, from the famous speech of Stephen the martyr in Acts 7. And here's what Stephen says, quote, at that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action, underline that verse, was powerful 
in speech and action. Now, some of this, of what Stephen says, you could have deduced from a close reading of Exodus reading between the lines. But the full social implications of where and how Moses was raised in the royal court may not have dawned on you. But it certainly dawned on our own Sandy Richter, who continues to teach for us some and works full-time at Wheaton now. Listen to what she says about Moses. Moses has been raised in the royal court. As a result, he is literate and has been groomed for administration and diplomacy. He was at least bilingual. He has been trained to lead, and he knows what to do with a weapon. He knows how to organize large groups of people. These are definitely not the standard skills of a slave, but will be essential for the new rebel leader of the Israelite cause. He is culturally an Egyptian, and more than likely his function in Egyptian society was to be the liaison, bridge the gap between the Egyptian elite and their Hebrew workforce. But when he comes to adulthood, Moses' true loyalties emerge when he strikes down an abusive Egyptian foreman. The result is that he is exiled from Egypt, finds asylum with the nomadic pastoralists of Midian, and after a generation of training as a shepherd in the Sinai wilderness, is waylaid by the God of his fathers to return to Egypt and rescue his people from Pharaoh. An impossible situation at best. When God says, go down, Moses, and let my people go, Moses flinches, as we're about to see. That's the context for our text for today in Exodus 3 and 4. This sets Moses off from the previous patriarchs and sets him in the line of the prophets. Moses, unlike the patriarchs, is not merely called to go and do to bless and be a blessing, to receive and believe in the promise and its fulfillment, he is also called upon to proclaim God's word even to an inhospitable audience and to perform miracle, miraculous deeds and wonders and to lead his people home to set them free. As a prophet, Moses is much like his descendants Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, but he is also unlike them in that he is a liberator, not just a proclaimer, not just a claimer of God's promises, but one who helps enact them. Now this particular narrative begins with Moses out in the Sinai Peninsula tending sheep, and he appears to be just looking for better pasture when he comes to Mount Horeb. Horeb appears to be just another name for Mount Sinai. It's already called in the narrative the Mountain of God. If this is Jabal Musa, it's an impressive 7,500 feet high. It's surely no accident that the very mountain where God will reveal his will and his presence to his people later is where he first reveals his will and presence to Moses. Some time ago, I was taking a group to Egypt, and we went to Jabal Musa, and we got there towards the end of the afternoon, but we decided we'd go ahead and climb it before it got dark so he could watch the sunset from the top of the mountain of Moses. So he went up and around and around and climbing and climbing. And when we finally got to the top, guess what was on the top? An ice cream vendor. <laughs> now I know why Moses stayed up on the mountain so long. 
Moses is in Midian simply minding his father-in-law's business, not seeking any close encounters of the third kind with the deity. If Moses is not quite hiding out in Sinai, he's at least hanging out there. And God wants him elsewhere. God's going to say, God calling! Currently, Moses, like many seminary students, is underemployed. The text says Moses went to the back of the desert, to the west. Semitic peoples reckon directions by facing east, the rising sun, not north. And so west was the back of the desert. And then he encounters the Malach Yahweh, the messenger of God appears to Moses, the one we have come to call the angel of the Lord. Several commentators suggest that this messenger of God is actually God himself, i.e. it's not merely God's angelic representative, it's God. However, this very messenger of Yahweh appears in the older parts of the historical books in the Old Testament, especially in Judges, and it's probably him here as well. And if you read Stephen's exegesis of the Moses story, Stephen is very clear. It was an angel of the Lord that spoke to Moses through the burning bush. Now, the peculiarity of seeing a bush burn without being consumed intrigues Moses. So he draws closer. God's presence as a flame would seem to imply his holiness, his purifying force. And the fact is also his miraculous power. Any being who can set a bush on fire and not destroy it is a unique being. For that matter, any being that can set a whole room full of people on fire at Pentecost and not consume them is a unique being, I'm just saying. This suggests harnessed energy and power, inexplicable in merely human terms. This event does not seem to be presented as a supernatural vision, unlike Ezekiel 1, but rather a miraculous, natural occurrence happening outside of Moses' psyche. God calls Moses by name two times, indicating a certain urgency, and Moses responds immediately, Yes, he does. Throughout this discussion, while Moses complains about his inability to be a public speaker, he shows himself more than capable of carrying on a dialogue with God at length. Furthermore, in light of the context we mentioned at the outset, Moses seems to be making excuses. He seems to be trying to practice call forwarding. Here I am, Lord, take my brother. Does this avoidance technique sound familiar to you? Verse 5 should be translated, I think, as follows. Stop coming near as you are doing. One could say God does not want Moses to experience a premature ministerial burnout. The point is that Moses is not yet ready to come into God's presence. He must be prepared and know not merely what he is dealing with, a burning bush, but know with whom he is dealing. And this he finds out in verse 6. The place is called a holy place. 
not because it's inherently sacred, not because it's hallowed ground, but because God is there. This holiness characterizes the story of God and his people in Exodus in a way that's not true of the stories in Genesis. God is holy, and he requires a holiness and strictness of his people's behavior in a way that is at least not made explicit before Moses' era. The taking off of sandals may be because they were dirty, or it may simply be a Middle Eastern practice in God's presence to be without various articles of clothing, like Muslims today take off their shoes and wash before they go into the temple to pray. Beginning with verse 7, God explains that he has not ignored the cries of his people. Rather, he has both heard them and come down to do something about their suffering. God cares so much that he has come from heaven to intervene on their behalf. We should never forget that God has been coming and coming and coming and coming since the very first stories in Genesis. He is the God who comes down and didn't merely come down in Jesus, but many times before that as well. The story makes clear that it is God, not Moses, who is the prime rescuer of his own people. God says this, I have come down to rescue them and bring them up out of the land. He also plans to provide a homeland for them a land presently inhabited by various other peoples and groups. Further, it's not just any land he's going to give them, but a good and broad land, and the, the Hebrew says oozing, oozing with milk and honey. The images of cows who are not utter failures, but rather their udders are full and dripping, and hives that are so full of honey, it's just oozing out down the side of the hive. Now Moses' initial response to this call is understandable. He's overwhelmed. It's too great a task for one who is at least at present, or at least pretending to be, only a simple shepherd. And in any case, he's unworthy of such a job. He implores God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Now, if I was God, I would have come back and said, Who better than you? You were raised in the royal court in Egypt. Moses is not yet fully making excuses, but he simply sees himself as inadequate to the task. In one sense, this could be seen as disingenuous, unless Moses has totally forgotten his roots, forgotten that he was raised in the Egyptian palace and had an important status there at one point early in his life. But hear me, friends. It is not the adequacy of Moses or the skill of his tongue or his worthiness that is at issue, since God, who is fully adequate and worthy, will be with him. Moses' own shortcomings will not prevent God from using him. The first part of God's answer is, I will be with you. And this could be actually a play on God's name, Yahweh. The second part of God's twofold answer to Moses in verses 13 through 15 is one of the great storm centers of controversy in all of Old Testament studies, and I will refer you to Drs. Arnold and Stone and Cook and the whole Old Testament department to help you understand it. 
What is God's name? What does it mean? What sort of question is Moses asking? The matter is complex, but the evidence leads at least me to the following conclusions. Number one, in verse 12, God said to Moses, I will be with you, the verbal form, ech yech. Secondly, in verse 14, we have the same form of the verb, ech from the root hayah. The use of this verb in verse 14 suggests that we are being told something about God's activity or his self-revelation in his activity, not something about his ontology or being or essence. So it may be incorrect to translate the Hebrew here, I am that I am, despite the literal video footage, and interpret it to mean, I will be what I will be. I will reveal myself as this. Third, normally when God was going to act and had just revealed himself, he's given a new title or a new name. See Genesis 16, 13. Notice that Moses, unlike Paul, does not say, who are you, or who shall I say you are, but rather he expects to be asked not whether this God exists, but what is your name? Now, a name is not just a label in biblical terms. A name is not just a, a sort of tag to identify somebody, the name often connotes the nature of the person. What Moses means by what is your name is what new revelation is there to tell me what you are like? Or under what new title have you appeared? Fourth, Moses' question is not posed as a merely hypothetical one but as the natural and expected reaction of the oppressed Israelites. The authenticity of Moses' mission is linked to a revelation of the divine name, confirming that God is going to do something. So verses 14 and 15 do not suggest that the key phrase is taken to be a refusal of God to reveal himself. It cannot be totally enigmatic. Rather, there is a parallel. He, God says, I am the God of your fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is I who are speaking to you and to them. Possibly even the tetragrammaton, Yahweh, is a shortened form of the whole phrase, Eyeh, Asher, Eyeh, I will be what I will be. After this weighty theological interlude, Moses becomes an excuse maker. As Exodus 4 progresses, it becomes clearer and clearer how much Moses is looking for a way out of this until finally he exclaims, send somebody else to do it, please. Though the question in 4.1 is, what if they, the Israelites, don't believe me? You see... It seems that the real issue is not where, whether Moses will be believed by others, but whether he is willing to believe and trust Yahweh in this situation. It is Moses, not Israel, that needs convincing here. 
And God more than adequately provides a way for Moses to answer the Israelites' disbelief with three miraculous signs. God's power is obvious. So the only thing really left after answering all of this is for Moses to make excuses. Verse 10, I'm not eloquent, I'm heavy of mouth, and besides, I've not taken Witherington's rhetoric class. Maybe Moses is not straight up lying. He's just showing lack of faith in God. I mean, if God has already performed miracles in his midst, couldn't he fix his tongue? There may be an implied rebuke, however, when Moses adds that his condition has not changed since this revelation began. But then God's answer, who always has the last word, is final. Who has set a mouth in humankind? God is right royally ticked off with Moses and his excuse making. He says, now go, and I will teach you, and I will help you speak. Now is the moment of decision. God calling. Moses got to decide what he's going to do. He can either evade the matter. Time for questions is gone. Even given Moses' plea in God's anger, God in his mercy takes part of the burden off Moses by providing his brother Aaron to help him and to be his mouthpiece. Moses will speak for God. Aaron will speak for Moses. Moses will provide Aaron with the revelatory message from God. And thus it is said, as if you were God to him, end quote, i.e. Aaron doesn't get the revelation directly, but... Moses does. God will use Moses whether he likes it or not. This narrative is at one level powerful and at another level painfully honest. Moses is surely not presented as a clear role model of what to do when God calls you to serve in some way. And yet, of course, in the end, Moses obeys however much he tried to evade the commission at the outset. Is he like the son in Jesus' parable who refuses to go and do what his father tells him to do, but then turns around and does go and do it? See Matthew 21. Or perhaps he is more like C.S. Lewis at the point of his conversion when God backed him into a corner in Maudlin College and C.S. Lewis said, At that moment, I was the most reluctant convert in all of Christendom. This doesn't sound like surprise by joy to me. At the end of the day, how you feel about your own abilities or about the task God has given you is irrelevant. Let me say that again. How you feel about your own abilities or lack thereof or about the task God has given you is irrelevant. It's not about your feelings or inadequacy. It's about your willingness to obey and serve regardless of your feelings or apprehensions. The narrative shows the ethical ambiguity of the whole situation and of all such narratives. Should we see this story as a go and do likewise when God calls? And if so, in what respect should we follow Moses' example? Or is this a tale about how not to respond to God when he tries to light a fire under you, or in this case, in front of you? One of the great things I love about the Bible is its stark honesty. 
Even the positive characters in the narrative are revealed for what they are, warts, wrinkles, and all. There are no unflawed servants of God, no adequate servants of God, except, of course, the suffering servant, Jesus. All the heroes in the Bible, one way or another, have flaws, have feet of clay, make excuses, or do not follow through on promises. So the question becomes this morning, how about you? God calling. Yeah. Have you in the past practiced call forwarding like Moses tries to do? Have you in essence said, here I am, take my brother or sister? Have you made excuses about your inadequacy to serve in this or that capacity for the Lord, forgetting that he is able and that he can equip you? After all, if God can use Balaam's ass to speak prophetically to a prophet, then I'm willing to bet he can use any of us to accomplish his aims. Ask yourself this morning, in what way am I avoiding the call of God on my life? In what way am I serving at less than the level God has already called me to serve? In what way have I let my desires, my feelings, my sense of my own inadequacies get in the way of responding to God's call on my life? Have I indeed done that? John Wesley had some apt words of commissioning for all of us who may have hesitated on the brink of service or repurposing in our lives. And what I'd like to do is have them put up the words on the screen. You've heard these before. They're part of the covenanting service. And I'd like for us to share together in these words at this point in union, as and in unison, as a vow before God. So if you will, let's put our hands on our hearts and take the pledge. Christ has many services to be done. Some are easy, others are difficult. Some bring honor, others bring reproach. Some are suitable to our natural inclinations and temporal interests. Others are contrary to both. Yet the power to do all these things is given us in Christ, who strengthens us. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will, rank me with whom you will, put me to doing, put me to suffering, let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you, let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Now that's what I call call accepting rather than call fording. I have a final story for you, courtesy of Steve Brown from Florida. In the 11th century, 
King Henry III of Bavaria grew tired of court life and the pressure of being a monarch. He made application to Prior Richard at a local monastery, asking to be accepted as a contemplative and to spend the rest of his life in a monastery. Your Majesty, said Prior Richard, do you understand that the pledge here is one of obedience? That will be hard because you've been a king up to now. I understand, said King Henry, but the rest of my life I will be obedient to you as Christ leads you. Then, said Prior Richard, I will tell you what to do. Go back to your throne and serve faithfully in the place where God has put you. When King Henry died, a statement was written, quote, The king learned to rule by being obedient. Christ expects us to be faithful to our call and to all the training and preparation God has done in our lives so that we could be and do exactly what God always planned for us to be and to do. It's not about our adequacy. It's about our willingness and God's sufficiency. Moses tried the pastoral life, not quite a monastery, but similar. But he was trained and equipped for more. Indeed, there was no one better prepared than Moses to go and set God's people free. So like the king, God said to Moses, go back, do what you were born and prepared to do, and set my people free. God calling.